Hey, everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics, the podcast where we talk about all of that and then some. I am the author of the book, Common Sense Pregnancy, and this is, you know, if you haven't picked it up yet, go get yourself a copy because that's where the conversation started. So you guys, here was the plan. I was planning on a big, long rant about the state of the world today because guess what? This week's been a roller coaster from major wins uh, in, you know, taking back the house to expected losses and tragedies and crises. And as I like to say, and then some, I can't keep up. And while I could go on and on about it, I'm not going to do that this week because something happened this week that distracted me so much from the world outside my door that it jolted me out of my rant. My son, who lives out of state and whom I haven't seen in several months, showed up on the doorstep by surprise and shocked the hell out of me. It was the biggest joy jolt and boy, oh boy, I needed it. So instead of focusing on what I wanted to say to you this week about current events, the latest studies or what have you, I want to keep it short and sweet. There's this joy and relief that you feel for your baby when you see them after a nap or at a day at work or, you know, any kind of separation. And then you're reunited. And no matter how long or how brief, it feels magnificent. Well, here's the good news, mamas and papas. It's the same feeling when your baby is a grown-ass man. When you see your baby again after a few months apart, that's what living's about, not anything else. It's not about what's happening out in the world. It's about what's happening right here at our own door. So that's it for this week, folks. Let's take a fast break and come right back for this week's guest. Okay, we're back. Now, y'all know that I'm concerned about C-section rates here in the U.S., where we're still at a one out of three ratio of births by cesarean section. Well, this week's guest is bringing us a history lesson about how the heck we got there. Jacqueline Wolf is a professor in the Department of Social Medicine at Ohio University. She specializes in the history of medicine, specifically the history of women's health, the history of children's health, the history of public health, and the history of biomedical ethics. She's also the author of a recently released book titled Cesarean Section, an American History of Risk, Technology, and Consequence. Let's get Jacqueline on the line. Hi, Jackie. It's Jeannie. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. It's kind of a gloomy afternoon here in Portland, Oregon. Where are you? I'm in Athens, Ohio, and it's equally gloomy. Is it gray and funky? It is. It's cold, gray. It just feels wet, even though it hasn't rained today, but we've had incredibly rainy weather here. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we're dealing with. And I whine about our weather patterns all the time because this is our weather for about, oh, eight or nine months of the year. But you know what's really gorgeous is um, the contrast of the gloomy gray with the really bright orange and red fall colors. So um, I got a little gratitude on that in the midst of my whining. Yeah. So, so Jackie, I read your a little bit of your bio, you know, right before I got you on the line here. But I always start off my podcast with the same very hard question. Are you ready? I'm ready. Who are you and what do you do? I am a historian. I specialize in the history of medicine. 
Um, for the last oh, more than 20 years, I've been a professor in the Department of Social Medicine at Ohio University, which is located in the medical school. Um, it's a very multidisciplinary department. I'm the only historian in the department. We have a medical anthropologist, medical sociologist, epidemiologist, uh, health policy person. Um, and um, it's a, a wonderful way for the humanities and social sciences to be integrated into medical school education. Oh, there's so many things I want to ask you about that. Um, but before I ask you questions about that, uh, I'm, I'm kind of I'm curious about who you are when you're not working. What's the rest of your life? It's, you know, it's an esoteric question. We ask, who are you? I got the what do you do part. You know, um, people ask me that all the time, and I have to laugh because I came to academics, as my mother would have said, late in life. Um, I didn't get my PhD till I was 47 years old. So I am so delighted to have this career that really it's become my identity. I spend many of my off hours delightedly working, doing research. Um, my research focuses on the history of breastfeeding and childbirth practices in the U.S., um, my daughter is grown and I'm living alone now and um, I delight in actually working most of the time and I'm really happy about that. It's not, I never complain about the work that I have to do. Um, I guess, you know, things I enjoy, I enjoy reading, I enjoy swimming, I enjoy hiking, um, I enjoy seeing friends, but for the most part, I enjoy working. Oh, I just love this about you. And I love that you got your PhD at 47. You know, I'm, I'm, um, you know, a woman of a certain age myself with grown children. And I love that our younger listeners, women who are just getting into, you know, the, the real meaty years of young womanhood, of, of hearing that there's just so much ahead of you that you can set goals and meet goals, you know, when you're middle age and beyond. Yeah. And you can you can enjoy more than one career, that's for sure. Oh yeah, yeah. This is number I'm working on number, you know, 3 and 4 here right now. What are you on? <laughs> uh, well, I I I feel like I've lived so many past lives that I can't <laughs> even I can't, I've lost count now. <laughs> I know. We're fortunate that way, aren't we? You know. Yeah. You know, as a historian, you can look back on women's lives and they didn't have this kind of, you know, eclectic career path that many, many of us have had. Am I right? No, we're, we're living in a very fortunate time. When, you know, the, kind of, the kinds of questions my daughter asked me, like, oh, mom, what sport did you participate in, in in high school? You know, I started laughing and saying, when I was in high school, girls didn't participate in sports. There was no way we could participate in sports. So, yes, young women today don't understand. I think they do. But 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 they don't don't feel it viscerally how much the world has opened up to women. Right. Yeah. So I'm curious, how did you get into the history of medicine, and and why women's health? Um, That's two questions, but go for it. You know, um, just like many historians of medicine, I fell into it completely accidentally. There definitely are history of medicine PhD programs in the country. There's one in uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison, one at University of Pennsylvania, at Harvard, at Johns Hopkins, but they're far and few between. I got my PhD at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and I didn't even know history of medicine was a specialty. Um, I was studying history, and I was studying environmental history, which is kind of looking at the way humans have affected landscapes. And I finished all my coursework, and I was 
looking for a dissertation topic, and I thought I would write about the Dust Bowl drought. And I was sitting there with soil maps spread out before me on my study room floor in complete despair, realizing I really don't have an affinity for this. I, I don't want to read soil maps. I'm not interested <laughs> in this. And, and lying at my feet, my, you know, my, my, my baby, um, I was, when I was in grad school, I also gave birth. Um, my life wasn't planned all that well because I ended up doing two things that suck time like a black hole sucks light. Oh, um, I'm right there with you, sister. I did nursing school with amidst two pregnancies. You do it. You do yes, it. Yes, yes. Um, and lying at my feet was the woman we had a breastfeeding. And I thought to myself, I can write a dissertation about the history of breastfeeding practices in the United States. And little did I know, at that moment, I became a historian of medicine. Wow. So that, that's how I fell into it. So, and it turned out to be such an interesting topic. I mean, that's what got me a job. Um, I, you know, I mean, people write, people scramble and, and, and search for dissertation topics all the time. And many of them can be pretty esoteric topics, but the concreteness of breastfeeding practices just delighted people who, when I started applying for jobs. I love that. You know, we often talk on this podcast about the incredible creative endeavors women take on during, you know, their pregnancy or more often it sounds like during their, the postpartum period or, you know, the first year of their baby's life. And, you know, I kind of have this, I don't know, little mythology that, you know, we have so much creativity coursing through our bodies to create this little person that, you know, if we're lucky and we have some opportunities and resources, we can then, you know, turn it in the what's left over into a dissertation or a business or a book. And it sounds like this may have happened for you. No, it's it, it's absolutely true. I if it hadn't been for my daughter and in, in you know, I've written three books now and in all three books I I in, in in a different way each time thank her for for introducing me to this field. I mean, she shifted that child shifted all my interests, and it's been endlessly fascinating to research women's and children's health. It's become it's become such a passion because you know one question I constantly ask is how did we end up here? How did we end up with these childbirth practices? How did we end up being a formula feeding culture? And if we understand that history, we can begin to change current practices. So for me, being a historian um, in a medical school and having concrete effect on present day practices is the most thrilling part of what I do. So this has got to be kind of actually recent history because women's health really hasn't even been a thing for all that long. I mean, there were doctors that took care of women, but the study of women's health, they were just sort of, you know, like men's health had to work for, for women for all of the years of modern medicine. And in, I mean, am I off base? Well, I mean, I can answer that in, in a couple of different ways. One, um, what we call social history today, that is looking at the lives, the history of the lives of everyday people is a relatively new field. Mm -hmm. um, and in the United States, especially about women's history, um, and all the different facets of women's history, including women's health, 
um, really didn't begin in earnest until the 1970s. And often what sparks historical investigation is what's going on in in the world at large in the present day. Mm -hmm. And the 1970s was the time of women fighting for childbirth reform, women fighting for all kinds of reforms Mm -hmm. in women's health, whether it was the treatment of breast cancer, um, better access to contraception. Um, and so, yes, those, those activities in the present day really spark people's interest in looking back in time yeah. at those very topics. Yeah, yeah. Well, I got in touch with you because I thought your, um, your op-ed that you wrote for the L.A. Times back in, was it July or August? I'm... Sometime during the summer. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think I... The, yeah, um, it offered a pretty fresh perspective and some historical insight into a topic that we talk about a lot here on the podcast, which is C-sections and how come we do so many of them these days. And um, the op-ed was titled, American Women Are Having Too Many Caesareans at Too Much Risk. And I I have written, you know, in my own books and, and actually lived much of this history myself, you know, as a labor and delivery nurse for oh so many years. And I'm curious why you decided to write that particular piece and what you wanted, what did you want your readers to get from it? Well, it really stemmed from um, my third book, which was released in May, um, Cesarean Section in American History of, of Risk, Technology, and Consequence. And the main question that I was trying to answer in that book um, was, you know, I've been looking at the history of childbirth practices in the U.S. for a long time. And my second book was a history of obstetric anesthesia and changing views of labor pain. And mm-hmm. at the end of that book, it brought everything up to the present and um, talked about the salient characteristics of birth today, in which are high epidural use, high cesarean section rate, high induction rate. And knowing, because um, I've looked now at literally thousands of birth records from as early as the 18th century midwives records to 19th century charity hospitals where women would go to give birth, indigent women would go to give birth. I've looked at all these records and throughout time, about 5% of human births run into trouble, 5%. Yeah. Um, doctors verified that in the 1890s and the 1930s. That was the figure they used. And certainly I saw that in the medical records. So my question became, how did we end up in the modern era defining so many births as problematic that one in three women in the U.S. have to have major abdominal surgery to give birth when traditionally, when, when we were much less sophisticated medically, everyone admitted only 5% of human births, if, if left to its own devices, only 5% need medical help. How did this happen? So that's what got me very interested in the book. And ultimately, I wanted to, um, you know, get the message out more, what I found in the book. And that's why I wrote the op-ed in the LA Times. Yeah, got it. So a lot of it has to do with the introduction of um, continuous fetal heart monitoring during, or electronic fetal heart monitoring during the 70s and 80s. And um, were you going to say something? Well, no, I was just going to say, no, you're absolutely right. Um, The book I wrote is is a 200-year time span. So it's an incredibly complicated story. But I agree with you. If if I was to name, if someone said to me, just name one thing that contributed to uh, the the run-up in cesarean sections, it absolutely would be the introduction and use of the electronic fetal monitor. Yeah. So if I could, I would... um 
like to read the last paragraph of the op-ed if if you don't mind cool sure yeah sure okay so obstetricians you wrote obstetricians trained since the 1980s have no memory of maternity floors before the fetal monitor although prof their professional organization the american college of obstetricians and gynecologists has issued periodic bulletins since 1979 advising that the fetal heart monitor or the fetal monitor does not appear to be useful in low-risk pregnancies that interpreting monitor strips correctly is not an easy matter and that universal reliance on the monitor has led to an unnecessary increase in cesareans. The monitor remains in near universal use in American hospitals, even for low-risk births. Covered California has set a cesarean rate target of 23.9% of low-risk births for the hospitals in its network. One way to achieve that target is to bring back the fetal stethoscope and limit electronic fetal monitoring to high-risk pregnancies. Now, you mentioned the 80s because you know i think right now we're we're into the second generation second maybe third second i think of mothers who've labored with continuous um electronic fetal heart monitoring and for listeners who you know haven't yet gone through labor maybe they haven't taken their prenatal class that kind of tells them what this is electronic fetal heart monitoring is a computerized machine with some long leads that are attached to mom's belly. One monitors contractions, another monitors the baby's heart rate. And it's strapped on with some you know, elastic bands. And the nurses read it and the doctors read it, the, the information to assess how baby is tolerating labor and how often mom is having contractions and how baby is putting up with those contractions. And you know, most women who have babies over the last couple generations have had that monitoring. Before that, if you watch, you know, Call the Midwife or, you know, Downton's Abbey, you know, any historic birth scene, they're going to use this funny looking forehead stethoscope where they can listen to the baby that way. And you just put it on, you know, once in a while, every half hour or so, listen, baby doing okay, great. So once we started watching every single solitary moment of, you know, how baby was reacting to labor, that's when trouble really ratcheted up. And I don't want to go into too much of a rant, but, you know, stop me and tell, let me stop there and let me get your commentary on what I've just said. Well, you know, I couldn't agree with you more, Jeannie. Um, one of the problems, and again, I, I've, interviewed obstetricians as part of my research of all generations. Me too. So I interviewed a lot of <laughs> yeah. I interviewed a lot a lot of obstetricians who were um, obstetric residents when, when the fetal monitor was first introduced. Yeah. And they tell stories almost overnight how the cesarean section rate spiked. Yeah. Because as they said, I mean they still complain about the monitor, the the, the obstetricians now who are older who are, who are in their sixties now. Mm -hmm. Um they say it's like looking at a piece of modern art. No two obstetricians, and studies bear this out, can agree on the meaning of a pattern. Um because they can have multiple meanings. And one of the problems initially was that um, doctors, since they had used the fetal stethoscope, as you just described, intermittently about every 30 minutes to check on how the baby's heart rate was, um, they didn't know how babies reacted throughout labor. So suddenly they're seeing all these spikes 
on on the field monitor and they panicked and the cesarean section rate began to go up very quickly. I mean, quickly, precipitously. And part of the problem was not only that the the bad readings of these monitors, misunderstanding what the monitor was saying, but that also normalized cesarean section. Very quickly, we went from women who knew no one who who ever had a cesarean section um, Mm -hmm. to women who knew every woman knew Mm -hmm. someone, every pregnant woman knew someone who had a cesarean, that the surgery for both women, both pregnant women and physicians alike, um, it, it became every day. Yeah. And that's part of the that's part of the problem. So it wasn't the initial spike was caused by the electronic fetal monitor, but then a lot of other factors also um, not only um, sustained the rate but also increased it. And part of it was the normalization of cesarean sections. Yeah. Well, I learned fetal heart monitoring in nursing school and when I was trained as a labor nurse, and that was back in the in the eighties. And I occasionally worked with doctors during those years and and during the nineties who had practiced without monitoring, you know, for their entire careers, decades. And then all of a sudden, they were accountable to a, mach- a machine and they were required to make new medical decisions based on what that mach- machine read. And that really pissed a lot of the older doctors off, especially since they could see the direct result of what was happening. You know, time and again, the monitor would say, emergency, and then they They'd be in this situation where there's something documenting that perhaps the baby is having trouble. And so they'd kind of have to go to the C-section room because if they didn't, then that looked like neglect. But time and again, the baby came out just fine. Perfect APGAR scores. And everybody would say, yeah, you saved the baby. And they would check the blood. uh, Initially, when the rate went up, a lot of hospitals said, check the umbilical cord blood gases. And just as you said, the babies, there was no need for the cesarean section. The blood gases were just fine. Right. Um, I, let, me, let me make two points about, about the scenario that you just described. Yeah. Um, number one, it's led to the de-skilling of obstetricians. Yeah. We had these, as you described, these, these doctors who were highly skilled. I mean, they could do more with their hands than these machines ever could tell you. Yeah. They could tell more with their hands. That skill is gone. Mm-hmm. Um, these days, if someone comes in in labor, um, doctors will immediately take out an ultrasound machine to see if the baby is head down. Yeah. I mean, I can tell if a baby is head down with my <laughs> hands. Um, but And yet, you know, the younger obstetric residents, they, they don't want to trust their hands. No, they the depend on the point, technology. They depend on the that technology. Point, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. They depend on the machines. And also they spend so much time learning how to use the machines that that's, a, that's the biggest part of their training now. Um, and, and again, part of the de-skilling of obstetricians where the, where the hands-on skills have been lost. The other thing that you uh, mentioned is how the electronic fetal monitor affected the malpractice climate. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of doctors say, well, we can't help it. Um, we have to do it to protect ourselves. It was the fetal monitor that created the malpractice climate. Yeah. Not until the mid-1980s were there any lawsuits whatsoever for failure to perform a cesarean. It was the fetal monitor with the monitor strip, with, with lawyers allowed. Now they could go into a courtroom and say, point to a squiggle on a page and say, that's where the child was damaged. 
Um, how you can't, you know, I, obstetricians would say to me, how can you argue with that? You can't argue with that. Yeah. Um, and yet it's in, in many ways, it's complete medical nonsense yeah. that there really is. The one thing they thought they could prevent with the fetal monitor was cerebral palsy. Mm-hmm. The cerebral palsy rate has not gone down even a smidgen since our cesarean section rate went from 4% to 33%. Right. It hasn't gone down a smidgen. So, you know, but our newborn mortality no, rate has gone up. Oh, yeah. and our maternal mortality rate has certainly gone has. Way up. Yeah, yeah. Well, I remember some of these, you know, doc, old school doctors. We'd be in as nurses. We'd be in a position of saying, "Doctor, doctor, there's, you know, look at what's going on on the monitor," and they'd say that mother is fine. And then we'd be in a real, you know, they'd tell you if you don't like what the monitor is telling you, then take the damn monitor off. But as a nurse. I mean, that was the right answer, actually. But as a nurse, I'd have been medically liable, not to mention have my ass fired, if I didn't monitor patients per standard of care. And over the years, there were fewer and fewer old school doctors, and all the new doctors were trained to use continuous monitoring. Midwives didn't use continuous monitoring, you know, in the same way, but all the obstetricians did. And every labor room I ever worked in used it. A lot of C-sections went down because of what we thought the monitor was telling us. And those babies turned out fine. But it was just instilled in us that monitoring was the heartbeat of our careers. And we were sent to, you know, nurses are today, periodic fetal heart monitoring refresher courses. You know, they'd be maybe a couple hours, maybe all day, maybe sometimes all weekend events where Nurses and obstetricians and other birth practitioners would be shown fetal heart monitors strip after strip and told horror story after story where a strip was going along just fine, baby looked like tolerating labor great, all of a sudden a catastrophe happened. Inevitably, the strip that they were showing us, you know, the nurse or doctor didn't respond fast enough, a baby was born compromised, a lawsuit was, you know, cause it ruined that nurse's life. I mean, it was just frightening. And it reinforced in nurses and doctors that they had better monitor and clearly show that, you know, that they were doing all that they could in response to the monitor. It's crazy. And, you know, it's, it's, not just, <clears throat> it's not just nurses who have been pressured and scared into yeah. using the monitors. It's laboring women, too. Yes. I mean, if a laboring woman doesn't want to use a monitor for any number of valid reasons, like they want to walk around the floor, mm-hmm. they don't want to be tied to the bed, mm-hmm. um, there, you know, any untold reasons, um, they're, they're also told, don't you care about your baby? Right. There's and bullying. And the pressure on, right, the, the hint is you're going to kill your baby or you're right. going to harm, mutilate your baby if you're not hooked up to this monitor all the time. Right. And yet... You know, I want to go back to what I said in that article. The the premier organiz- professional organization of obstetricians has said since the late 1970s that the monitor is no more effective than the fetal stethoscope. And it has a lot of side effects, mainly a ton of interventions, most notably too many cesarean sections. Yeah. Most of the cesarean sections we do in this country are unnecessary. Right. And the fetal monitor is part of the problem. And women have a perfect right to to um, say, I don't want that medication. I don't want that diagnostic tool. You know, we, we teach that to medical students. Every patient has the right to refuse treatment, 
to refuse a diagnostic tool that you recommend. They have a right. Um, you just fully inform them about the consequences. And yet somehow when you're in labor, it's as though your rights go out the door. Mm-hmm. And women are, you're not supposed to pressure patients if they've made an informed decision. But women in labor who are very vulnerable are pressured all the time. Right, right. It's called consent. And across the board, this is our major conversation we're having about women's lives these days, consent. And what about informed consent? How many women who are hooked up to a monitor are told that if you're hooked up to this machine, your chances of having cesarean section are much higher than if you're not? That would be informed consent. And how many women do you think are told that in this country? They are not Probably told that. None. Right. They're told that it's part of routine care. They don't know any different, you know, and that's the way that it is. However, midwives are changing the game. And, you know, that is that is a step in the right direction. I mean, the, the American um, College of OBGYNs have updated their standards of care and many, you know, forward-thinking hospitals are changing the way that they utilize EFM. Um, I don't know that it's necessary that we go all the way back to, you know, fetoscopes, but the way that we utilize the technology we have now, um, we can use it in a way that is similar. You know, we can check heart tones every half hour with the monitor. Exactly. I I would agree with that. Um, but do it intermittently the same way that you use the fetoscope. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do not do it, it, it. Doing it continually is, is actually detrimental to the health of both the fetus and the mother. Yeah. Um, don't do it continually. Um, so, yes, I mean, you don't, I suppose you don't have to completely get rid of the technology. It's like any technology. It's a matter of how it's used. Right. Right. Yeah. So I I could talk for an awfully long time about the connection that medical malpractice and medical health insurance um, makes to this, um, but I've kind of ranted on it on a few on a few podcast episodes before the whole malpractice insurance. But I am a hundred percent sure you've got a, at least a few prime comments about it. Well, you know, we have we haven't talked about it. we haven't talked about um, reimbursement rate reimbursement rates for cesareans either, um, and that therein lies the problem too. Why why do you um, reimburse more than twice as much for a cesarean as for a as for an uncomplicated cesarean, no complications, than you do for a vaginal birth? Yeah. These vaginal births take longer. They you know there are all kinds of why not reimburse the same? If you're going to do that, just, just reimburse the same. What studies show is when the reimbursement rate for cesareans go up, the rate goes up. And um, we, know that the, we know that there's a direct correlation here because for uh, physicians who work for HMOs and are on salary and don't get paid for every service they provide, mm-hmm. if the rate for cesareans goes up, their rate does not go up. Mm-hmm. So it really is directly related to how much, I'm not saying that, that obstetricians are mercenary and want to make more money, but something, whether it's unconscious, something is going on here every time, whether it's Medicaid, whether it's private insurance, when they raise their reimbursement rate for cesareans, the rate goes, the, the overall rate in the country goes up. Yeah. So um, it's become hospitals bread and butter. Yeah. So there's the, the fear factor. Commonly, 
There's the fear factor of, of a malpractice insurance or uh, lawsuit. There's the financial factor of, you know, what you just explained as, you know, they get paid more. And then there's the culture. But I would say, I would say the malpractice fears though are, are, are imaginary. They've been created by, um, by, by doctors who really should be standing up and saying, we should not be using the electronic fetal monitor the way it's been used. Mm-hmm. It's contributed to this problem. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it was only 30 years ago that, that the vast majority of malpractice suits against ob- obstetricians, gyne- gynecologists were for gynecologic errors, mm-hmm. not obstetric errors. So this is something actually doctors buying into electronic fetal monitoring created the problem. They can solve it. Yeah, they really can. Yeah. Well, we have been talking quite a bit, Jackie, and I think you and I could probably talk about this quite a bit. In fact, we got to get you back on the podcast really soon. But before we hang up on each other today, I've got a few more questions I want to ask you. Probably most important is this. What else do you want women to know about you and your work and what you write about? Well, um, the, the thread that, that connects, I think, my breastfeeding work with my interest in childbirth is the one question I ask across both is how did we end up recommending things medically that aren't good for women and children? How did we end up being a formula feeding culture? Um, how did we end up um, performing major abdominal surgery on a third of the women who are, who are giving birth in the U.S.? Um, I really am fascinated by how we define what is normal and necessary when often the things we define as necessary really aren't medically necessary. That's, that is, that's what has really driven the passion behind my work, I think. Do you have an answer? How did we get here? Why are we doing this? Well, I mean, that's, that's why I, that's why I ended up writing, writing these books. Um, I, I, th- I mean, there's so many reasons. One is uh, the, lo- the modern love affair with technology mm-hmm. when it, it really is no more necessary than, than real excellent hands-on skill. Mm-hmm. Um, part of it is very culturally based. I mean, we're, especially now that women, um, women are, are, they're workers at home, they're workers in the world. Um, when, often women uh, go back to work shortly after giving birth. And we are schedulers in the United States. I mean, we're, we're looking at, our, at what time is it constantly. And, um, you know, birth, childbirth is notoriously, you can't plan a birth. If you, you know, it happens when it happens. You mm-hmm. don't know how long labor is going to take. And, you know, we, we like that kind of control. That's part of it. Part of it is, you know, is culture. Yeah. And part of it is the reality of women's lives today, too. I mean, that was, that's why I got interested in obstetric anesthesia. I mean, I came of age when women talked about being empowered by natural childbirth. And by the time I was a professor, I was teaching a, a class, for, class full of young women, doing, uh, teaching them about the history of women's health in the U.S., and they, you know, said to me, I want my epidural in the parking lot. Yeah. And that in the hospital parking lot. And, and that's, that's what got me interested in that topic. How do we change from one generation to the next about what we need? What is, what is necessary for our lives? 
So it's not just medically driven, it's also culturally driven. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, w- women, the society has not supported women, working women who also choose to be mothers. And um, our lives are extraordinarily difficult, and we've made adaptations. And one of those ap- adaptations is planning births, and the, the induction rate has soared. Um, and so there's all kinds, you know, it, it is not a one one fact story. There are so many factors that, yeah. that have, have contributed to what we're doing today with women's health. Yeah. Yeah. I think that f- for myself, when I answer that question, you know, how did we get here and why is it like that? It's because women have never been the actual priority in women's health. I think it's changing. Oh. I think it's changing. Well, what's really scary, you know, we only mentioned briefly the current maternal mortality rate in the U.S. We're one of the only countries in the entire world whose maternal mortality rate is rising. Yeah. And we have we have by far the highest maternal death rate um, than any other wealthy country, mm-hmm. um, like four times more than any other wealthy country. Mm-hmm. And it's still it's still on the rise. And you're right. Um, you know, one of the most uh, prominent researchers in women's health, Stacey Geller, University of Illinois, she said women's women's uh, maternal health isn't just in the basement of our priorities. It's in the sub basement. Yeah. Um, and I hope you're right that it's changing. But it it you know, and, and that's why California needs to be applauded, because California has, you know, other countries when there's a maternal death. They study every moment of that labor to Mm -hmm. figure out what happened and what they could have done to prevent it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what California started doing. And just like we have, you know, you know, from medical shows on television, crash carts when someone um, has a heart attack. Yeah. Well, now they have hemorrhage carts in California. If a mother starts to bleed, they have a protocol. They know exactly what to do. Every state in this country, every hospital in this country should do something similarly. That's how they've brought maternal mortality down to negligible levels in most European countries. And we haven't even begun to do that. Right, right. Oh, there's so much more. Maternal death, yeah, most are are preventable. Yeah. So that's, that's very upsetting. Yeah. Well, a lot of our listeners can go back to the archives in this, um, podcast and we've talked about the global perspective on maternal mortality and and women's health quite a lot um and i'm i'm going to encourage listeners go do a little bit of homework you're going to find probably dozens of episodes um that touch on that very topic so i want to ask you my last two questions my wrap-up questions this one is a fill in the blank how do you fill in the blank nobody ever told me that Um, you know, I have so many, um, so many friends, um, whose daughters are now having, having babies, right? They're becoming grandmothers. And, um, I talk to them very frankly about new motherhood. No one ever told me, and I'm thinking back in time, no one ever told me, um, that it, it takes unbelievable time and concentration to care for a tiny baby. Two, that's why people used to live in, 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 in villages. Um, two adults, new babies are way, they, they take way more attention than two adults can, can, can possibly give them. And, um, 
you know, no one ever told me that, that you kind of don't get to sleep much when you're a new mother. And I think that, that all new mothers just need to chill, know that that's the way it's going to be for the first few months of their baby's life, and actually enjoy it and not be miserable. Sleep when the baby sleeps. I just wish someone had told me that the rhythm of life changes so much when you have a new baby. Yeah, yeah. And when that rhythm of life changes, it's normal to feel off balance. It's normal. Yeah, to some extent. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And just talk to friends about it. Talk to your own mother about it. Talk to your aunts about it. Just, you know, it, it really bothered me. In fact, that was one thing that I said. How come no one talks about this, including childbirth, too? I mean, I mm-hmm. actually loved labor. I loved labor. Mm-hmm. And I just marveled at the fact that women don't share what labor is like with each other. Mm-hmm. I just, I just wish, I guess that I just wish that that people just talked about these more these things more and and shared more with each other. Well, I think that too is changing. You know, this is the world of social media and podcasts and you know, people are talking. People are talking. And and that's why I think that things are changing because a new generation of women have access to um, information from a wider source than ever before in women's history and you know, they're, if they're creative and curious and they pick the right sources, they're going to get a more thorough education um, to fuel their informed consent about the medical decisions that are part and parcel to modern prenatal care in America. Yeah. So, yeah, I would also, I would also caution, though, that, yes, Sometimes we're, we have too much information at our fingertips, and a lot of it is super inaccurate. Mm-hmm. One of the things that bothers me most about how childbirth is portrayed is, you know, women screaming during second stage labor as they're pushing the baby out. And, and you know, w- young women who have never gone through labor or women who had epidurals and don't know what labor feels like think that second stage labor is the tough part. It's not. <laughs> it's, you know, it's transition. It's, it's the last few minutes as your cervix fully opens up that's the tough part. The, you know, it's a relief to start pushing. Mm. Um, so I'm very disturbed by, you know, these, these, some of these um, so-called um, reality shows that, that portray birth in an incredibly inaccurate fashion, mm-hmm. and it scares young women to, to death. So I actually think that that the the information age is kind of a two-edged sword when it Mm -hmm. comes to childbirth. Yeah, definitely. Well, let me ask you this last question. Where are you in the world of motherhood? I, um, personally? Mm -hmm. Yeah, personally. Or professionally. Yeah, no, my daughter's now 27 years old. And um, she just got married a little over a year ago. So I am looking forward maybe soon to being a grandmother. Mm. And um, I, I, you know, I just, you know, motherhood, I think this is true of all women who have been mothers. It's it's just essential to our lives. Mm -hmm. You know, we we think about our kids all the time and they're just, um, they're just a presence even when they're not, not a presence anymore. My daughter now lives you know, many, many, many states away from me. Um, but because of the information age, we can be in contact all the time, whether it's through texting or, uh, you know, FaceTiming or, you know, what, whatever, the, whatever the, different, the different modes are now. 
So, you know, I think once you've been a mother, it's just, you know, it's just part of a very central part of who you are. Yeah, it is. It's, yeah. Well, Jackie, this has been a really, really informative conversation, and I really appreciate your coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me. My pleasure. And I'm pretty sure we're going to talk again down the road. That would be wonderful. Okay. We'll talk again. Bye-bye. Th- thanks. Bye. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said. Mama said. Mama said. Our guest today was Jacqueline Wolf. And the book we talked about is titled Caesarean Section, An American History of Risk, Technology, and Consequence. And we'll add the Amazon link for that in the podcast notes. You can learn, learn more about me at genefaulkner.com. Email me, gene at genefaulkner. Tweet me at genefaulkner. And please go buy the book, will ya? Common Sense Pregnancy is available everywhere books are sold. Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios. That's it for this week. We'll talk again next week. Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics is part of the Parents on Demand Network, a curated collection of pregnancy and parenting podcasts all in one spot. If you like Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics, you'll probably also like The Modern Mom Society with host Carrie Rubin. Go check it out at the Parents on Demand Network. Someone will look at me